great. Um, I, I was excited uh, in seeing this talk presentation title um, and even more excited as I, I got to read through Marcia's um, bio here. So without further ado, let me share that with you so that we can get started. Um, Marcia Lane McGee, second. Marcia Lane McGee, the, the co-author of Fat Luther Slim Pickens, is a national speaker, graduate student, and the co-host of the Plaid Skirts and Basic Black podcast. A Chicago native and eldest sibling, Marcia refuses to pull any punches, doesn't easily give in to, can't, has a close and complicated relationship with feedback, and believes no is a love word. Marcia is also a first mom of 20 years. She has learned a lot, loved a lot, and grieved a lot. From her place in the tension of the pro-life movement and the reality of a choice for adoption, she hopes to inform, educate, and accompany those who want the needs of women and their children met. Marcia, we're grateful you're here. I'm grateful that our audience is here. Um, and without further ado, I will let you take it away to share with us your uh, tips about adoption. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I am really, really excited to be here. I, when I was asked to present, I was like, yes, I will do this. This will be great. Because um, I think more people need to hear about the realities of adoption. Um, we hear a lot of really good positive language. Um, and and even though my story is very positive, which you will, you will now hear, you will hear soon, um, it is important that we're always realistic. So like Michael told you before, I'm a first mom of 20 years. It'll be 21 years in April. I was 23 years old when I found out that I was pregnant with my son. I was in my last year of college and I... It turned out that I wasn't going to be able to finish college because of some other issues. And I was kind of desperate and scared and confused and sad and every other emotion that you could possibly have with an unplanned pregnancy that has shifted into crisis. So to start off just with a little bit of vocabulary, um, I don't, I, even though sometimes I'll slip up, I'm trying to steer away from using the term crisis pregnancy. Um, even though it's a little bit more, it's a little bit wordier because the pregnancy is not the crisis unless there's a medical crisis. <laughs> um, it is experiencing pregnancy while in a crisis. And that is a, a thing that I'm shifting toward. I think that really explains it a little bit better than what it is. Um, uh, because I was pregnant and then I was immediately in crisis when I didn't have access to housing or school or food or any of my needs. and that I gave birth to a healthy baby. So <laughs> that's where we were. And I also use the term first mom as opposed to the term birth mom. That was another shift that I made as, as time has gone on because I, I feel personally that first mom is a more accurate description because I was my son's mother. I was his first mother, right? He, he does have, I would in no way call his, his mother through adoption, his second mother. That's not 
a real thing that I would ever do. Um, she is still his mother, but I do refer to myself and to other women who have placed their children for adoption as first mothers um, because we did mother them. We did nurture them. We did care for them. And that is just a, that's an important distinction for me to make. So that's why you'll hear me use the term first mom. And then also as I'm shifting into using experiencing pregnancy while in a crisis. It is a mouthful. It is a lot to wrap your head around. I do not apologize, but I hope that you'll bear with me. So like I said, I was 23 and pregnant with my son and I didn't know what to do. If you know me or know my story, I've shared it before. I did at first, my first choice was through desperation was I have to finish school. I've got too much going on. I can't do this. I'm so ashamed. What will my family say? Um, I'm, I guess I'm gonna have to have an abortion. I obviously did not have an abortion. I, I was pretty far along when I found out that I was pregnant and the day of my appointment was the first time that my son kicked and moved. And the whole time I knew that there, there was a life inside of me, I knew it. I was just justifying my choice and my decision because I was scared and I felt like I didn't have any other option. And fr quite frankly, I was ashamed or made to feel ashamed. Needless to say, I did not go through the abortion. And I decided that, well, maybe I can parent. Maybe I can make this work. But then a lot of things happened in my life where I ended up having to leave school and I lost my access to housing and transportation and a plethora of other needs, and I made the choice to place. Over the years, um, I actually, something that you should know, I am in an open adoption with my son. When I picked the family that my son was, I, I was able to pick the family, just like you see files and folders and however adoption agencies do things like this. I I literally Googled, uh, this was 20, 21 years ago. I Googled open, I Googled adoption agencies, Illinois, and it was the second place that came up. They're no longer in existence, but they were second place that came up and they were the only, they were the first people to answer the phone. And they sent me files with families and I got to read them over and I got to choose the family. And I was like, okay, this is great. And, and they only did open adoptions. And I was like, that's wonderful. I would really hate for a child to be looking for me in 18 years. And um, that would be awful for them. They should know where they come from. They should know who they are. And that's all I thought the open adoption was going to be. And that was kind of where I was. I was like, I'll get cards and letters every six months. We'll be, I'll be able to move on with my life. That's what everyone always told me. You could do this. You can just move on with your life. You can move on with your life. And I was like, okay, that's what I will do. I'll move on my life and my child will know my name and I will watch him grow up through cards and letters and pictures and it'll be great. When I met my son's family, we went out and got pancakes because pancakes is my favorite food. Um, They're my favorite thing. And the people at the adoption agency wanted to make me comfortable. So I chose a breakfast restaurant. And the day that I met them, I did not I did not eat my pancakes, which you should know something's wrong if I don't eat my pancakes. I'm just saying. And uh, I, and not because anything was wrong, but because I was so nervous and I, this was, and we were both nervous and we were meeting each other for the first time and we absolutely hit it off. 
I'm sitting there like, I love these people. These people are so great. I fully believe that they will take really good care of my child and I will get to watch them grow up through cards and letters and it'll be wonderful. But that's not what they wanted. Um, I know that sounds bad. That was like really ominous. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> that's not what they wanted. They, they're white. They're white people. And I am not a white person. And I was not having a white child. And their, their whole thing was like, no, we want this to be actually open where we want your child to know you. We want to make sure that um, your child knows their heritage. And we didn't know it was a boy then, that they know where they come from. And it's really, really important to us that this is the case. They have a son, they had a son from another adoption and they were hoping that would be the case. And the first mom was like, I can't do this. Um, and I absolutely understand that now at this place that I am 21 years ago, I understand where you're like, I can't, this is really hard. And there are other things that are not my story. So I'm not going to share them. And they said, we, we can't do this to another child. Is there, if you're not open to this, then, then we'll just say, we'll just say, we'll just call it quits. Right. And I said, I can, I can be open to that. And that's what started this lifelong relationship that I have with my son's family. I have been in his life, his whole life. I was at his baptism. I was at his first communion. We're, we're Catholic. I was his confirmation sponsor. Um, I have known them throughout. They lost one son a few years ago and I was the cantor for his funeral. Our lives are so wrapped up in each other and it is, it really is beautiful. It really is amazing. And it's also really, really hard. <laughs> um, but in those moments, it's, it's going to be hard though, no matter what. In these great moments of joy, we have to recognize there are still these moments of pain. And over time, as I've lived, as I've lived through all of this, I am recognizing that as a, as a first mom, I have some knowledge about how this goes, right? Um, and I want to share with you five things that pro-lifers should know about adoption. And it's from my hard, it's hard one, but it is hard fought too, because I had to do some fighting with myself about some of this wisdom that I have to share. And while you've heard my really great story about adoption and open adoption um, and the positives of it, the first thing I want you to know that the adoption narrative is unreliable. I don't know if you've ever heard the quote, history is written by the victors. And not to say that, um, well, and, and not to say that anyone is a victor in this situation. There are some winners and there are some losers. And most of the adoption narrative as we know it is given to us by adoptive parents. Adaptive parents, from their perspective, they have their own perspective, right? And in their narrative, this is a beautiful thing that we did. This is a wonderful thing. We have our child. This woman can move on with her life. Um, this child gets a great family. And then you get the narrative, adoption is love. Hashtag blessed by adoption. 
and and a hashtag that I've used myself previously was adoption rocks, right? Because you're like, this is amazing. But that's one perspective. With the adoption narrative, we have to realize that everyone's story is different. There is no singular narrative when it comes to adoption. The adoption experience is not a monolith. I have my story. In my adoption situation, there is myself, my son, and my son's mom and his dad. And my story in the same situation is very different than my son's story. And our two stories are very different than my son's parents' stories. Though we may live in the same reality, in a lot of ways, we don't have the same truth. We don't have the same worldview. We don't have the same experience. Even within our story, it is pretty diverse. With myself, I lost something, right? I, I gave something away and I have to live with that. In my son's story, he lost something. Something was taken from him and also something was given to him. And he's got to live in that tension of that. And that is his story and his narrative. narrative. In my son's parents' story, they also had losses, right? They lost um, in their own way, which is still not my story, their ability to have healthy children, right? And they made the choice to adopt. And, and then they gained they gained a child in that process. They gained two, gained two children in that process. Um, and we have to recognize that the narrative that we have of adoption is just that, it's a narrative. It's a story that people wanna tell us and that they think that we want to hear. But when in reality, we have to wrestle with the realness of it and listen to other people's story and get into the nitty gritty and understand the different perspectives that there are. While my story is great, my story is not indicative of open adoptions, actually. There are a lot of open adoption. There are some open adoptions like mine. I absolutely know that. I have I have other friends that I've known for a long time who have an open adoption where their son's mother was really involved in their lives. And you hear about these things on television and things like that. But something that is important to recognize in the adoption narrative, and especially in the open adoption narrative, that adoptions are closed, right? An adoption is only open as long as their adoptive parents who are their legal parents allow it to be. It is messy. Adoption is messy, right? Yes, it is love, but also it is messy. We have to make sure that we are hearing the stories of everyone. Just because you know one adoptive person, you don't know about adoption. I'm learning in the last 20 years there's a lot that I don't know about adoption that a lot I've had to open my minds up and understand. And in the last five years has been a huge reality check, which is why I'm here talking to you today. <laughs> and when I say reality check about the adoption narrative and understanding other people's stories is the second thing that I want to tell you. And this is the hardest thing I think that it's to come to grips with is that adoption is trauma. And that might sound harsh because like I said, there are so many adoptees out there, adoptive parents, first moms that have amazing adoption stories, right? 
100% of adoptions are made possible by trauma. So my son and his brother, they um, super great. I love them both. I've known my son's brother since he was three years old when I came into their lives. And something that was really great that his parents, I guess, didn't recognize until I came along. So um, like I said, my son's parents are white. My son's older brother is Mexican. And when I walked in their house the first time after meeting them so I could have dinner with them and get to know their house and their dog and, you know, what have you, um, their son walked up to me and he looked at me. He's like, hi. And I was like, hey, right. Super outgoing kid. And he's like, you are brown just like me. It's <laughs> like, yes, yes, I am brown just like you. I'm a lot more brown than you, but I'm brown just like you. He's like, yeah. I was like, and he'd be like, the baby's mom is brown like me. Like he told everyone, right? Which allowed us to realize this is probably the first time in his life that he saw any real representation, that there was someone who looked like him, which should allow us to recognize that while he has a happy life, something is missing and something is wrong. He is he was missing his family, right? Trauma indicates that there is distress and there is disturbance and no child would be adopted if there weren't distress. If everything was okay, there, there wouldn't be children who were adopted. So adoption is trauma. Everyone wants to look at it like it is a win-win situation, right? It is making something good out of something bad. Yes, it is, but it's not win-win and it's not without it's harm. Not to say, I just want to be, I want to make myself very clear, not to say that if you adopt someone, you're doing someone harm, but it's important to recognize the trauma that comes with adoption. Two thirds of the parties in the adoption triad, and if you're not familiar with the adoption triad, 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 um, words are great. Um, it is the child, so it's a triangle, so it's the child the first mom and then the adoptive parents like that is where that is when two-thirds of that are losing you have to recognize that there is trauma like i said when he looked at me and told me that you're brown just like me i remember my thoughts were okay so this will work out, right? I didn't have any pictures of their other son. I knew they had a son, right? I was grateful that though my son was going to definitely be a darker shade of brown, <laughs> that he was going to, or I just still didn't know at the time, like that my baby was going to be in a home where it was okay to be darker. It was okay, you know, to be not white, that this wasn't, I wasn't introducing him into this new world that he wouldn't know anything about his life. And then he would still have me. For a long time, I thought, I believed that through adoption and making sure that I chose open adoption, that it would lessen the amount of trauma, right? I was like, this will be great. I'll be here. I'll answer all of my son's questions. He will never have to wonder if I loved him. Nothing like that at all. 
I was wrong. By the time that he turned 10 years old, the feelings of abandonment started. I'm in the room right there with him. He got his tonsils out. I was right there, <laughs> right? Like I said, at that point, I'd been at every major event. I'd come over for dinner. I'd, I'd be over asking like, hey, can, they live closer to our uh, large airport. And I would say, hey, can I park my car at your house and get a ride to the airport? I was a part of life, but still at 10 years old, there was evidence of trauma that came from adoption. That feeling of abandonment, of lack of belonging, and of not having an anchor. And journeying with my son through that over the last 10 plus years has been a huge part of my reality. And it started to open my eyes. At first, I was like, what's going on, right? I don't understand this. But as I recognize that there are more adoptees out there and they start listening to adoptees, they also experience trauma, right? That doesn't mean they love their families any less. That doesn't mean that they don't love their situations or their homes. Um, but a wide range of people who've never met their mothers to my son, <laughs> who knows my name, knows me, can call me, um, we have car dance parties that embarrass him, even though it's just him and I in the car, still felt that abandonment and is still feeling the effects of that trauma. There are first parents who are living that trauma every single day. There are first parents who have, who have succumbed to depression. Trauma is such a reality of adoption that we forget about it because it is so positive and because the narrative is it's not abortion. But something that we have to remember as we remember about the adoption narrative, that we remember that adoption is trauma. The third truth that I have that which is probably something that I should have known is that adoption is forever. It's forever. Right. It is a choice that you make and you and because adoption is forever, your relationship with adoption can change just like any relationship that you have in your life. Even the longest standing relationship in your life has changed. Right. It has evolved. It has maybe gone away. There have been conflict, things like that. And. It is important to note that women regret their adoptions, just like women regret their abortions. It is a lifelong decision that some people cannot bear to live with. It is a lifelong decision that sometimes our children can't bear to live with. So when I say adoption is forever, it is forever. And there's no way to mend it. There is no way to fix it. It just is. Once it's done, it's done, right? It's nothing like you can't redo a decision or, um, or ask, like, say you, you, you know, you bought the wrong thing for dinner and you're like, oh man, I'm going to make a different choice. And I know that sounds really abstract and odd, but there are people who do treat adoption. Like you made this choice. Now you can move on with your life, right? This is really good. You can move on with your life. A lot of the people in our movement treat it as, and you can move on. The reality is you can't because it is forever and your choice is forever. Your child is forever. 
And that is something that we need to understand. And in understanding that adoption is forever, compile with the trauma and the reality of our stories is the fourth thing that I've learned is that brave comes last. And I think that this is a really, really important thing to know. Okay. As a first mom, I have been called brave. People will tell me that I'm brave and point that out like more than they'll tell me that I'm black because apparently that is the one thing that people know about me. Oh, you're a first mom. You're brave. You're really brave. And it's almost aggressive sometimes how people feel like they have to tell me that. But in reality, brave is the last thing I am. The last thing I am or was is brave. Before I was brave, I was desperate. Before I was brave, I had unmet needs. Before I was brave, I was lost and alone and scared. Before I was brave, I made a choice. And first I made a choice for life. And then I made a choice to place because I was desperate, scared, alone, and had needs to be met. I didn't make the choice because I was brave. That was the last thing on my mind. The first thing on my mind was I don't have. I don't have, so I need to give up or I need to give away or I need to place. Brave comes later. Brave is a thing that first moms choose after the choice has been made. Brave is something that I have to pick up and start every day. In my and I realized that in my the first year that my son, before my son's first birthday, I was in different support groups and well, just one support group, and I made a few friends with, uh, with some first moms and. Um, one of them, I'll call her Lacey. I met her really soon, like after my son was born and she'd placed her son recently and, you know, she was quiet and tired. And I call her Lacey because the day I met her, she was wearing a lace collar. And so that's always how I associate her. Um, the next event, she wore something different. And I was like, but where's your lace collar? Because I was in such a grief fog that I didn't recognize anyone sometimes. But she was the one person who I talked to. And I hadn't heard from her in a while. And by the next Mother's Day event, I asked, I was like, where's, we're going to call her Lacey. Like, where's Lacey? I thought she would come. And one of her other friends said, Lacey succumbed, like, well, to put it mildly, Lacey succumbed to her depression. And there was, it was really sad. Lacey couldn't live her life without her son. And someone said, you know, I thought she was really brave. And this was someone who was over us. Like they didn't, they were adoptive parents. They weren't first parents. And she's like, you know, I thought she was really brave. And all of us kind of had this look on our face. And one girl said it and we, when we all didn't. And Rachel said, it's really hard to be brave. We actually aren't brave and we're really sad and we have to choose to be brave. And I always think about that, that we have to choose to be brave every day. We have to put it on 
And not because it's our choice, but that's what because of what everyone else expects of us. It was so beautiful and noble and we're brave. But beautiful, noble bravery doesn't get us what we need. Beautiful, noble bravery doesn't get our needs met. It doesn't help us feel less desperate and scared and alone. Being brave is the very last thing that first moms are. And it is the very last thing that we need to be called. But I know that's, I told you four things that are probably like, made me feel like a Debbie Downer, right? You're like, wah, wah. Like, I told you that the narrative has been misconstrued and we should really rely on stories and actually understanding them. I told you that adoption is trauma. Full stop. It doesn't matter where, where you're at, right? Something got taken, something got pulled away, something that's not right. I told you that adoption is forever, which we already know, but sometimes we don't know it. I told you that brave comes last, if it even comes at all. But the fifth thing that I learned about adoption as a first mom is that adoption is still all the things that people say it is. Adoption is still love. Adoption is still beautiful. Adoption is still sacrifice. With that being said, it is how are we loving, right? What is our intention behind it? How are we making it beautiful? Because love and beauty don't just come, right? The minute you adopt someone, you're like, poof, love, poof, beauty, poof, sacrifice. It still is work. You have to work at the love and the beauty and the sacrifice, though it is not ideal. Though in my situation, as wonderful as it is, as the, as much as I love the fact that I took my son to, like, I took him to his graduation. Like I was his ride to his high school graduation, even though we're all there as much as I was there when he moved into college and I made his bed in his dorm room. That didn't just come one day, right? That had to be worked at it, worked at. Yes, adoption is love, but it works for people who are loving. It works for people who are willing to work at beauty. This is not... I want to be very clear. If I leave with you anything, I want to make sure that you understand that as much as I want to share the realities and the hardships of adoption, I fully recognize the role that it's played in so many people's lives, in my life, in my son's life, and the beauty and the goodness that has come out of it. And I want to assure you that that is all still true. And so is everything else that I said before. A few months ago, well, actually last month, <laughs> um, I officiated a wedding. It was my son's brother's wedding. I am so involved in their lives that he and his now wife asked me because in, in their life, besides their parents, I was the most consistent and positive adult that they've had. They've been together since they were 13 years old and they wanted me to be a part of it. And when I looked through pictures that night, and there's a picture of my son's brother, my son and I, and his new wife, and it's the most joy-filled picture. I don't know what we were talking about or what we were doing, but we were genuinely laughing and smiling in this picture. And there was so much joy in that moment, so much beauty, so much love that 
was there because essentially because of my sacrifice and my son's brother's mom's sacrifice. <laughs> but there was still trauma. There was still our own personal stories. There was still this forever narrative. There was still that moment where I had to be brave because I knew everyone was looking at me. Everyone knew who I was. So adoption is still all of those things, but we have to decide if we are going to deal with the reality and live in the tension of that and do what we can for women, for their children, to help alleviate the trauma, alleviate the false narrative. Um, adoption will still always be forever, but the need for bravery, can we do that together? I don't know. I hope we can. Thanks so much for listening. And I'm not sure if we have any more time for questions, um, but I, I'm happy to answer any questions. I don't know how that works at all. Hey, thank you so much. That was exactly, I think, what we needed to hear. So thank you. Um, we have one question in the Q&A section right now. Um, if other folks want to drop questions in the Q&A or request to share audio and video and ask a live question, you can do that. Um, our first question from Kyle is, Marcia, I can think a lot of messaging from the pro-life movement that is harmful slash simplistic. What kind of messaging would you promote as alternatives? Well, I actually wouldn't offer any messages as alternative when it comes to adoption, actually. I think that there are no messages that can really encompass what it is. Though I, like I said, adoption has, is in my life. It's part of my life. It'll be part of my life forever. I don't believe that adoption is a positive thing when it's not necessary. And um, I believe that we need messaging around abortion and not, you know, you know, and things like that, because there is a good that comes out of giving your child life, right? It don't, and like 100%, there's always a good. I think with adoption, it's tricky. Uh, I don't actually, that's not true. I don't believe it's tricky. I believe that with adoption, um, there is like someone is losing. And I think it's really hard to, it's hard for me to promote that now. And even my son's parents and I have had this conversation. I was very honest with them. When I started doing more family preservation and things like that, I said, hey, it's going to probably be pretty public knowledge about my stance on adoption. And we had an honest conversation. They're like, yes, if we would have known better then, we would be making different decisions too. So the three of us at the same time came to this choice that, we're all still family and there's nothing we can do to change that. But if we'd known better, do you know what I mean? And so that, so I don't think that there isn't any kind of messaging. Mm -hmm. I would promote as an alternative family preservation. Yeah. Most so maybe, maybe some messaging around like adoption, like we agree with the pro-choice slogan, adoption is not an alternative to abortion. Yes. Um, but how do we, I guess like the, you know, the question is like, how do we, Add the nuance, of course, like, yes, you I know. think it's a, how can I help instead of a, yes, maybe, because here's the thing. I tell people this all the time that if I, if someone had given me a place to stay and think for like a month, <laughs> do you know, like, I'm not kidding. We, we would never know. You would never know my name. Do you know? 
married, but I would have my kid. And well, it would be very different. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe you'd still be an author and maybe I'd still know your name because you'd be a Catholic author. So yes. maybe that. <laughs> maybe that. Uh, maybe. I, I mean, definitely not in the same like pro-life circles, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I see another question here. Do we have yes. time for it? Okay. Yes, please. Uh, so Stephanie said, what do you recommend as tips to adoptive parents in open adoptions? Well, first of all, um, I would say whatever promises that you've they've made to um, to the first mom, keep those promises. I think a lot of what I have and where I am in our relationship is what I'm learning is I'm a very rare person whose promises were kept. Right. Um, so like even an adult open adoption has a lot of range, right? Adoption is like an open adoption is just knowing the records aren't sealed. Right. right. <laughs> so that's why I say every adoption is a closed adoption because I have no, I have no rights. I mean, well, my son's 20, so I really have no rights, but, um, it goes from the records are not sealed to like, we take vacations together. I officiate at their son's wedding. Right. So, but it depends on what those are. One thing I will say about a tip for an open adoption is if adoptive parents do have a relationship with the first mom, it is really important to recognize the need for space and when you should intervene. And that comes with relationship. One thing with mm -hmm. my son, um, there are times where I like, kind of check out and pull away because this is hard and this is forever. And sometimes I can't do it. And it might be like three weeks since they heard from me. And then she will just send a text. This is back when my son was like five or six. And she'd say, Hey, I'm just checking in. I don't know if things, I just hope everything's okay. Right. Or if I don't respond, then it'll kind of be like, Hey, we were thinking about going to the ballpark on Sunday and if you want to join us, it'll be great to have you, you know, like things like that, like making it, I think a really important part is when an open adoption, you, everyone, everyone has to manage emotions. And it's really sad, like in a harmful way, the child always has to manage emotions or believe that they do. Um, adoptees have a lot of the same like anxiety issues. They all present differently, but, um, with the first parents and adoptive parents, we're trying to manage the other one's emotions and not trying to step on toes. I think the really important tip is to have directness mm -hmm. um, in contact. So there's no interpretation of what someone means. And I mm -hmm. think that's a huge part. Like if you just take out the need for interpretation, things will be so much better. Mm -hmm. We've gotten arguments. Like we, we like, like my son's adoptive parents and I, when we disagree, we're like, you know what? backing off and it can be like about a video game <laughs> like, but because we have that really great relationship we have the ability to be direct and yeah. open about our emotions and everyone gets what they mm -hmm. need eventually so i have two questions yeah um and my brain's a little messy right now because i have been up for too long um <laughs> so i'm sorry if this is worded poorly but um i guess i'm curious about some things that could help with um, keeping families together. Okay. Um, what's the word for that? Family preservation. Thank you. Family <laughs> preservation. Um, like, I don't know. Kyle and I have always talked because, you know, we've been dealing with infertility for mm -hmm. almost 11 and a half years now. And 
people would in the pro-life movement would constantly say like, oh, you should go outside an abortion clinic with a sign that says like, uh, you know, we'll, we'll adopt your baby. And I'm like, I'm so uncomfortable with that. Like, how would, why, why would you feel comfortable saying that to someone when instead you could be like, hey, do you need a place to stay for six months, two years, whatever? Like, you can come. We got a spare bedroom. Like, mm -hmm. if we have the resources to raise a kid, I'm, I'm sure we can figure out a way to help you. Like, I would rather, you know, do that sort of thing. And so I guess I'm wondering, like, do you think that the American model of the nuclear family is restrictive to the point of being harmful for family preservation? And like, are there other alternative models that you can see that would be good? Well, I don't know if I would be restrictive. I think that it creates these expectations that can be harmful. I think the expectations um, are a little bit harmful. So I was raised by a single mom, right? Um, and for the most part, I turned out okay, right? Like I, I'm, I, I got to be me and my opportunities and things like that. And yes, I did have a child when I wasn't married. And but those things happen no matter how you're raised, you know. Like, and I think people kind of forget about that sometimes. Um, but I think the harmful part is the belief that it needs to be a nuclear nuclear family <laughs> um that belief of a mom and a dad we already recognize that the belief of like you need to have a mom and a dad to make a family when in reality if mom and dad are miserable what kind of family life do you have and also a dad and a dad can make a family and a mom and a mom can make a family do you know what i mean or like um the co-parenting is you know like healthy co-parenting is happening i think once we see once we have representation of something else, it's a lot easier to recognize that I can do something else. I think that you made a really good point when you said, if I have the resources to adopt a child, I can have the resources to help you out. Right. And I think one of the things that I, I say all the time, and I'm surprised I didn't say it today was that the narrative or the mindset behind adoption and adoption cost is it, it's wild to me because I can start a GoFundMe. Like if I started a GoFundMe to raise my son, I was like, I don't have any money. I need $30,000 to kind of get my life together and get started. Here's this GoFundMe. I'm called freeloader. You want a handout, right? But the nice white couple who wants to adopt my child, they can start a GoFundMe for $30,000 to give poor black child a home. And, but they're not calling freeloaders and handouts. we both want to raise my kid with the same $30,000. But why don't I get to raise my kid with the $30,000? And I think sometimes we kind of, and I think that's in the way that it is harmful. You're right, that the mindset is, it needs to be this. So help me raise money. But I wish I would try and do a fundraiser, you know, back on my, like, I need to raise my son. Can I, I'm, you know what I mean? Like, can, here's my GoFundMe. I would get laughed out of that. I would call it all kinds of things, right? But if you want to raise my son and you look the part, even though you technically don't, because I look the part of my son's mother, right? Um, that's that's a whole different story and a different narrative. And you said you had a second question. I do. Unfortunately, it is 6.30. Um, so we do have to move on to our next session. We have a keynote with um, Anita Cameron of Not Dead Yet. 
on disability justice activist struggle against assisted suicide. Um, she is the minority outreach uh, director for Not Dead Yet, and she's a queer icon. So I highly recommend tuning into that. All y'all, thank you for being, uh, for attending this session, for participating in the chat, for listening to Marcia and her um, just powerful advice for us to take forward. Um, Marcia, I will definitely be in touch about a podcast episode. Yeah, so. absolutely. And come DM me on Instagram and ask your questions if you have any. Oh, yeah. You can find yeah. Marcia <laughs> on the internet. On the internet. Uh, stylish Sia? Is it still Audacious. Audacious. Audaciously Sia. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you follow me, I follow her. So you could probably find her through my, my contacts. Thanks, everyone. Bye.